Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Here's your host, Lara Fedorov. Hi, and welcome to UX Radio. Today we're talking with Eric Ries, the CEO of the Fat Ducks Group based in Copenhagen, Denmark. Fat Ducks is a leading UX company with offices and associates in over a dozen cities worldwide. Eric has several books to his credit, and I caught up with him earlier this year at the IA Summit. He was presenting on a variety of topics, and so our interview is a little bit off the cuff, covering everything from talking to executives about return on investment to British Airways service design. So if you'd like some advice on communicating tangible value with stakeholders, stay tuned. Our conversation begins with his fascination with my cool microphone. Back in the late 80s, I was going around interviewing people for um, a magazine that was being produced by a company called Time Manager International in in Denmark. And they did service design. This was before we called it service design. I think it had another name. Right. And so we had done service design programs for the European Union for uh, SAS, we turned them into Airline of the Year, and then the next year we did the same trick for British Airways. Nice. Uh, no, yeah, we, we, so I, I think it's very funny when, you know, a couple of years ago, the IA community sort of woke up to the fact that there is something called services. I'm thinking, are you guys kidding? You know, this has been around for a long time. When we had the summit in 2008 in Miami, I did a talk about services. I said, Guys, he said, people have been talking about this for decades. Right. I said, you've got to understand that there's a body of experience, and you can't just throw that out and think that because you coined a term that we didn't happen to use, that it didn't exist. Right. Um, so anyway, so going around doing these interviews, man, I lugged microphones and tape recorders and all this, and you've got this little setup that, you know, is like the size of nothing. I know, um, and the audio quality is really nice. This is very cool. And for you people at home that can't see it, <laughs> <laughs> she will post a photo on Flickr. <laughs> well, how did you how did you work with SAS to bring them so much success? I was very much on the periphery of this, but uh, SAS got a new chairman by the name of uh, Jan Carlsen, uh, a Swede, who um, his motto was was tear down the, the pyramids and uh, when he wrote his biography he talked he called it moments of truth he said we have 50,000 moments of truth each day that was the number of passengers SAS was flying at that time SAS Scandinavian Airline Systems which was a kind of strange semi-government owned consortium with uh, Norwegian Swedish and Danish personnel and that was both something that made it very good and also something that ultimately was its downfall because every crew had to include all three nationalities. And so you you were having pilots deadheading down to Copenhagen from Oslo so that they could fly a plane someplace else because they had to have a Norwegian on board. It was kind of a screwball system, but it did work and it was uh, a good airline, had always been good, had always been uh, progressive. They were the first ones to fly over the pole from Copenhagen to Tokyo. Uh, but service was really a differentiating factor, and uh, Jan Carlson was very interested in becoming the businessman's airline. He saw that that was where the profits were to be made, and he almost single-handedly invented the idea of business class. 
not first class, which was all sort of sure. caviar and champagne and very, very poncy, but uh, something that was good for people who actually had to arrive at their destination sober and do a job and weren't necessarily interested in having eaten foie gras for eight, eight hours. And so we went in and we designed, uh, well, we, I, I say this in a very grand way, I was very much on the periphery of this, went in and designed a service design program uh, called uh, Putting People First. And the idea was to put together mixed crews where the pilots also met the baggage handlers and met the cabin personnel and also the frontline personnel and everybody worked together to understand that the pilots weren't the only ones who were heroes in this and that there were a lot of unsung heroes that made all of this work. And Jan Carlson wanted to fly on time. He saw this as being very important. And reasonably enough, he said, well, we have flight schedules. Uh, people are booking extra flights and they're scheduling meetings and so on. They expect us to take off on time and to land on time. So we put together a program to train people to, to think in terms of the customer. And it wasn't just a question of you know throwing three free drinks at them in the air in order to elicit better uh, or to, to bribe the passengers, but in fact to do what you had promised to do. You get their baggage there at the same time they arrived and to make sure they arrive on time. And for many years, I mean, if a pilot arrived late at a destination, he could be sure that Jan Carlson was on the telephone in the pilot's, uh, pilot's room saying, so, you arrived late, why? And then that why became a process study. What can we do differently? I mean, I sometimes, you know, machines do break down and there sure, are sure. completely legitimate reasons why planes are delayed. But sometimes it's just because people aren't taking their jobs very seriously. And the same thing was true when we worked with British Airways and um, Margaret Thatcher, when she became prime minister, uh, immediately privatized a lot of industries and one of them being the airline industry and British Airways was this very uncomfortable alliance between British European Airlines, BEA, and BOAC, British Overseas Airline Corporation. And BEA and BOAC had competed for years and really didn't like each other very much. And so Maggie Thatcher brought in Lord King, who was one of her, her pals, and Lord King was smart enough to go to a company called Norton Simon and Shanghai, a fellow by the name of Colin Marshall, who has the, the honor of being the man who approved the Avis slogan, We Try Harder. So <laughs> Colin understood service, and he became then uh, CEO of, of British Airways and understood, again, that, you know, we've got to you know, get get people to work together. We've got to get all of our personnel to understand that they're one airline and to forget the animosities of the 70s and to try and move forward and see if we can't become a major carrier. And in 1988, we had lunch, and he told me, very frankly, and said, you know, Europe is going to end up having four or five major 
airlines, and they're all going to be consortiums. We're not, it's not going to be Lufthansa. It's not going to be British Airways, but it's going to be alliances. And that's exactly what's happening. We have, we have Flying Blue, which is KLM uh, uh, Air France. Right. We have Star Alliance, which is primarily Lufthansa, and then smaller airlines such as SAS. And then we have One World, which is British Airways and Air Berlin and so on. And it's very interesting to see how his predictions 25 years ago have turned out to be very, very true. I, we actually, I called him Colin. He is Sir Colin Marshall. And then he became Lord Marshall of Knightsbridge. Ah. Yes, you know, he's, he's a very important person. He retired as chairman in, I think, 2004. But he, he did a very good job. And British Airways, I think, today is still one of the best airlines in the world. I get very, very huffy about service design, and I say really, really snarky things about British Airways, it, not because I don't like them, but because I hold them to a higher standard, because I know what they're capable of doing. And um, Colin was also very good about going walkabout, and you know, suddenly he'd show up, and he'd be moving baggage too. He was there. He was part of the system. And yes. to move this to web design and what we're doing exactly. now, we have never fully succeeded in talking straight talk to the business community. We spend so much time fighting about our own nomenclature or getting involved in turf wars. We're a very little community and we keep splitting off into smaller and smaller communities of practice. And in the meantime, the business community is still saying, hey, you know, we need a website. And we as consultants say, why? And they say, well, because everyone else has a website. If you look at traditional change management, if you see this as kind of a target with, you know, with a bullseye in the middle and then concentric rings moving out, the why is in the middle. And then you can move to the middle managers, and they're responsible for the what. And on the periphery, you've got the frontline personnel, and they are responsible for the how. Right. And generally, they know how the how works. The middle managers, the people in their 30s, early 40s, moving up but still middle management, they understand the what, but in our industry they also understand the why. And the people who are my age, and I'm 58 right now, are basically clueless in terms of the why. We grew up in a very different kind of a world. And so, I mean, happily I have a gray beard and I'm, I don't necessarily look 58, but I don't look like, you know, I got out of school yesterday either. And so I can sit down with CEOs or CFOs or COOs and there's a kinship because I'm their generation. And so they have a tendency to listen to what I have to say as a consultant, which has served me very, very well. But when the, when the C-levels really start to understand the why, then we're going to see movement in our industry. And unfortunately, I think we're going to have to wait until my generation dies before things really start to move. I think the people who are middle managers today, who the, this is the 14th IA Summit. I know it's called IAS 13, but we started in 2000. So this makes the 14th Summit, and I've been to every one of them. And it's very interesting to see that we're still discussing many of the same problems that we were doing in April of 2000. Wow. And I think that that's... Uh, it's good because it indicates that we're interested and that we're trying to develop and we're trying to evolve the industry. And it's bad because a lot of the energy that's being expended on trying to figure out how to define information architecture, whatever we go and talk about, is energy that would probably be better spent 
trying to talk to people who were in their late 50s and early 60s why what we do provides tangible value to their companies. I don't think that we've been very good at explaining what we do. I don't think that we've been very good at understanding how they think. Uh, just because they don't understand our industry, we say, well, you know, they're idiots and they're old and, you know, whatever. And, and that's kind of too bad because they're not idiots. They didn't get to, these, to their jobs right. because they're stupid. They got there because they were actually very, very good at what they did. They just don't happen to understand our industry. So we have an obligation to help them. I think that, though, the people who are mineral managers today, who were in their 20s and 30s when the first summit came about, and who are in their 40s now, over the next 10 years are going to be senior management, and I, I'm hoping that things are going to be a little different. But I saw a very scary statistic in one of the Danish newspapers. I live in Copenhagen, Denmark, so um, uh, you'll have to pardon me if I trip over words or I say things that aren't grammatically correct. I mean, I was born in the United States, so technically English is my first language, but for 36 years, <laughs> uh, Danish has actually been my working language, so I... I I only sound American. I don't necessarily think American. Right. But one of the Danish newspapers said that something like 58% of European companies don't even have a website at this point. That's kind of shocking after all these years. You would think that somebody would have been able to explain to them why they can actually turn uh, the electronic experience into something that, that can be quantified on the bottom line. But nobody's doing that. Do you think it's because, I think you already mentioned that we need to do a better job of educating them, but also uh, not belittling them and sort of understanding who they are and how to talk to them. So it's just, I think it sounds like just a different approach and a different type of conversation that they can understand. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I think that there are a lot of people, I mean, you know, just conversations in the hall where I do hear that they belittle, you know, those silly CEOs that, you know, want kittens on the front cover and they think the homepage is important and, you know, the rest of the stuff that the industry likes to bitch about. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate. And at the same time, when people try to be businessmen, they don't necessarily understand the term. So they use something like ROI, return on investment, as a forward-looking metric. But you can't use return on investment as, as, as a predictive tool. It is a backward-looking metric. And if you say, you know, we predict the ROI of this is going to be, the CFO is going to throw you out of his office <laughs> in a snap yes. because these people do not understand our business. You've got to under, understand what NPV is or IRR, internal rate of return. There are a couple of terms that we need to understand, but by the same token, there is no reason for us to talk baby talk to these people. If we have terms such as metadata or uh, a faceted taxonomy right. or an, an ontology, it's our responsibility to educate yes. people or at least explain things in terms that they can understand. Make them part of the team so that they understand why, why we're doing what we're doing and what value we bring to the table. I, and I think we totally have that opportunity when we're doing the presentation. So when we're in the room with the team, we use that term, we explain it, 
or we we show we design this this way because of this and you're kind of linking it to things that they can understand that's it in a nutshell yeah you don't want to make people feel stupid i i know consultants who can get very very snarky and then when they get in a bad mood then they'll throw out a whole bunch of terms that nobody's ever heard of before and this is not a way to win friends and the truth is the your, your clients are the ones who are paying the bills and if they don't pay you then you can't have fun I mean it doesn't matter how boring you think the work is the office parties the travel coming to the IA summit all of these things have to be paid for by somebody and it's often the client so you know don't um, don't give the client a hard time right. and I see this happen um, hmm enough that uh that it, that it concerns me a little bit i it's not as bad as it used to be i mean there was a period where you know as long as you had a faded black t-shirt and a and a, and a new sharpie then you know <laughs> yeah you you waltzed into a room and you could do things but i've seen that um the consulting companies have run into problems where i accenture what used to be arthur anderson mm -hmm. You know, they'd be sending 25-year-olds out, and they cost 500 bucks an hour, and they're going to waltz in with absolutely no empirical experience whatsoever. And it may have been that they went to Harvard or Wharton or the Kellogg School of Business, right. but I'm sorry, experience does count for something. And the 25-year-olds lecturing the 60-year-olds on how to run their business doesn't really fly. And when they're cha charging 500 an hour, there's going to be a backlash. And our industry did the same thing. And for a while, it was very cool to come in in your faded black T-shirt and your your brand new Sharpie. I think that that's changing. And part of that is that the people who were 25 years old at the very first summit are hitting 40 now. And they've got a little gray hair. And they do have empirical experience. And they realize that there's nothing wrong with being aggressive and being a young Turk. But you do learn from experience. Yes. And so do you think the answer is educating in the presentation or are there other things that we can do differently? Well, it's empathy. We talk in our industry about empathy. And we talk about empathy in terms of the end users of our products. You know, who is going to be using our smart TV? Who is going to be using this telephone we're designing? Who's going to be using the application that we're designing? But the empathy also has to work the other way. We have to have empathy for the stakeholders. Yes. That's a critical concept. It was one of those head-slapping moments. I said, well, I've been in this business for a long time. I've, I've done this, but I haven't really thought it through in terms of a generic process. And I was, I, you know, I was, light bulb lights up. And sure. I said, yeah, all right. Suddenly I can see what I'm doing right, but I can also see what I'm doing wrong in places where I can improve what I do. Right. I can't play on the gray beard forever. <laughs> well, it's almost like you have a persona for the developers, one for marketing, one for sales, one for C-level, and all the people on the team that you have to collaborate. It goes back to your airline story. Everybody ha plays an important role, and you can't get there with a couple parts of the whole. You have to go, mm. go there together. Well, you know, it goes back further than that. I started out as a stage director. I came to Denmark as a theater director at the, at the Royal Theater of Denmark. And uh, I, when I was at university, the first show I directed 
on my own was Miss Julie by August Strindberg. And the show was a great success. I mean, it was really a good show. And uh, I used a videotape we made of it to get into grad school, although I didn't go to grad school. I went to Copenhagen instead. <laughs> That's another story. Uh, but the chairman of the, the, the drama department called me in and he said, look, Eric, you really have talent as a director and you did a very good job, but you have to understand there's absolutely nobody on your crew that will ever work with you again because you are far too demanding. You do not understand where they are coming from and the problems that they are fighting. And that was a, a very important life lesson. And I went home and I was... I was irritated because the show had gotten good reviews. We had done good things. I, I was, you know, feeling quite cocky and, and, and very proud of myself. But it was true. And I realized I didn't speak the language of the lighting director. I didn't speak the language of the sound director. I didn't uh, understand the problems of the stage crew that were dealing with sonography that I had actually designed. It wasn't that, you know, I didn't know how to swing a hammer, but but I, I didn't empathize with where they were coming from and, and, and their own deadlines and problems in terms of setting up the show. For example, if I rehearsed from 7 o'clock in the evening until 11, when are they going to set their lights? When are they going to paint the set? I'm asking them either to cut class during the day to do this or I'm asking them to pull all-nighters right. because I am taking up the stage exactly at the same time where they could be doing their work. So the result, the result was I took sonography classes, I took uh, lighting design classes, and I worked very, very hard. To, the next show I did, we all loved each other. It was a terrible show. It was a disaster. <laughs> but, but, but everybody got along very well, and it was a good learning experience. It, and it was... It served me very well because, you know, when people say, well, it can't be done. And so, well, it can. Have you considered this? You don't want to say, no, it can be done and this is how you do it. But instead say, look, you know, I've actually tried some of this. So I was part of the math club when I was in high school. This is like in 1968. We had this horrible big mainframe computer. It couldn't really do a whole lot of things. And you had to feed your program in on a pink strip of, 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 uh, of telex paper and I think we got it to play blackjack and our biggest, <laughs> our, our biggest hurdle was getting the machine to shuffle cards. It was very difficult to do randomization. All right. um, and you know the things that we do today by you know tweaking clock frequencies and whatever to get sort of a pseudo randomness out of things. I mean we had no clue how to do this on this Univac or whatever it was. But I knew enough programming when uh, when the microcomputers started to come out, I'm sorry, the late 80s when Director, Macromedia Director came out and suddenly I was working in an advertising agency and I was asked to help write these things and put them together and structure them. Nobody called it information architecture. I said, well, this is really cool because I understand computers. I programmed uh, and wrote the first Danish language uh, adventure game and that's kind of cool because we this was for the ZX Spectrum, which was a uh, uh, an English uh, machine. But see, Danish has three extra letters, like that O with a slash through right. it, and um, 
the AE com combined together, mm -hmm. together and the thing that looks like the A in an angstrom unit. Where are those on the Spectrum keyboard? If you're going to write a text adventure game, sure. how do people type it? And so I'd figured out how to use keyboard interrupts, and there were no. I could write something that didn't require any cues, X's, and one other letter. And so I moved <laughs> moved these things over to the other letters and used keyboard interrupts. And it was kind of cool that it could be done. So I understood how computers thought because I'd been working with them for actually a long time at this point. Computers are pretty dumb. They don't do a whole lot. They can add, subtract, multiply, divide, and remember things. That's about it. Uh, and if you've understood that and that there are very severe limitations, then it's pretty easy to figure out, okay, this is, this is how I need to think in terms of creating um, a programming concept for, for what we're doing. Macromedia suddenly is combining the computer... And it was a pretty stiff program at that time. And it, but it, it looked like BASIC, and BASIC looked like FORTRAN, and FORTRAN was what I learned back in 1968. <laughs> then there was compu uh, communication, and I'd worked in the theater, and that was hardcore user experience. We're trying to get the audience to understand our message. That was the job of the director. That is what I did for a living. So you know, all of these things are starting to come together, understanding of computers and communication and user experience. So learning what I had learned uh, at university and getting people to work together, the fact that I had learned about a, the disciplines that were suddenly relevant in terms of producing interactive media have served, served me very well. Now, I'm not a programmer. I haven't programmed anything you know, since the mid-'80s. And you know, there was a time where I got on a terrible fight on some listserv and said, well, Eric, said, I would never dream of hiring an information architect that couldn't program. And I said, well, yeah, <laughs> good. You know, I, uh, would you hire me? Oh, well, yes. Why? I can't program. I don't do HTML. I mean, I can read it, but, sure. I, but I don't program it. And there are others who are very, much better uh, at it. But the point is I know what it can do and what it can't do. Uh, that's, that's the key. I have programmed. I've programmed in some weird languages like Forth, which kind of looks like the hyper, the uh, the, the hyperstack model. Uh, I did some Pascal uh, and right. Fortran and and Basic and Visual Basic, and it I mean, I, it gave me enough of a ballast that I understand what's going on. But I'm not a programmer. But I can talk to programmers yes. or developers, and I have done enough art direction, even though I don't draw very well, that I can speak reasonably with art directors and we can have a good discussion about yes. about visual design and so on. And I didn't go to library school, but man, I've been sorting things all my life. I started with my baseball card collection back in the late 50s trying to figure out how many different ways can I organize it. I mean, usually you put everything just in groups of teams. You know, you went and for a nickel, you got five cards and a piece of chewing gum from right. the Topps company. And so, oh, well, these were the St. Louis Cardinals and these were the San Diego Padres or no, the Houston 45s, I guess they were called at that time, <laughs> and the, the, the Milwaukee Braves. I'm really old. And the Orioles. And here. the Orioles. Well, the Orioles have always been involved. In That's <laughs> nice. So, uh, so my friends would arrange things in teams, and then I'd say, well, all right, I'll put all the pitchers in one pile, and I'll put all the shortstops in another pile, and I'll put all the center fielders here. And Ooh, that's Kurt Flood from the Cardinals. That's great. And then 
I got this screwy idea that, well, maybe they were all wearing caps. How did they wear their cap? Did it, they tilt it to one side or the other? And I, there were all kinds of goofy ways to organize a baseball card collection. And I had great fun with this. And everybody, I, all my friends thought I was absolutely crazy. But I've done this all my life, looked at ways of, alternative ways of sorting things. And for me, and I'm not trying to define it, but I, it's a working different definition of information architecture for myself is simply that we... We create useful connections, connections that provide value. And we do this often by putting things into uh, useful categories, calling them something that people will recognize, and then putting this stuff someplace where people are likely to find it. And I don't think it needs to be more complicated than that. When you want to create a website to really sit down and understand why you're creating and what is the value that you want to give the user. And so then adding the content instead of just throwing a whole bunch of stuff in there and then having to go sort of clean it up. I always think about when my mom said, clean your room, and I just shoved everything under the bed. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like some of the sites that I've worked on are kind of like that. And you kind of got to pull it back out and you put the stuff in Goodwill or you throw it away in the trash can and then you just keep the good stuff. Well, that's absolutely right. I think that our, our industry has an interesting, well, there are two dilemmas right now as I see it. I mean, I was jabbering about service design back in 2007, 2008. I also tried to explain the difference between a concept as viewed from a programmer's point of view and from uh, an information architect's point of view or an interaction designer's point of view, and from uh, a visual designer's point of view. And these are three very different things. And I realized that when I facilitated a meeting at one point, everybody went away and everybody was happy. And on my way home, it dawned on me that everybody at that meeting went away with a completely different idea as to what concept meant. To the, the interaction designers, concept is a question of function. It's what it can do. But to a traditional art director from an advertising agency, concept is a question of look and feel. And the things that make advertising successful don't work very well on the web or in interactive media. We don't like to be preached to. There's a model called AIDA, uh, awareness, interest, desire, action. And if you're, you've got 1.7 seconds to catch people's attention while they're leafing through a magazine, yeah, you've got this you know, headline that's going to play metaphorically off of some kind of an image and hopefully people will stop up and say, wow, that's kind of cool, you know, who wrote this? And then if you're lucky, they'll actually start reading your body copy. So, you know, you have this winter scene and you have the snow-draped fir uh, uh, pine trees and it's all idyllic and you glue on a headline that says, scene of the crime. People are going to stop and say, what the devil was that? The headline is a tease, but on the web, a link is a promise. If you click here, this is where you're going to get. So the headline or the link for this same snowy picture of the idyllic pine trees drenched in snow, can you say drenched in snow? Well, whatever, <laughs> the, the same headline would be winter landscape. So the links are very different. And I think that that's why advertising agencies consistently over you know, 
20 years now have not understood what it is we do and why information architects and designers who work in our industry are so frustrated working for traditional offline agencies. Right. So that's, that's one of the problems. The other is that we have for many, many years been talking about findability and usability and a lot of other abilities and this is all well and good and it's all important but it also means that ultimately all websites should look alike and we're talking about um, retroductive inference we learn something one place that we expect to use someplace else you land at an airport you've never visited before the chances are pretty good you'll get your luggage you'll figure out how where baggage claim is because it's called baggage claim everywhere in the world uh, that's retroductive inference we learn something in Baltimore or at BWI that we can use when we get to LHR in London we need to watch out because suddenly if all sites look alike just imagine if you take all the sign signage off of stores in a mall I mean Ann Taylor looks like the gap looks right, like Banana right. Republic I think that the differentiating factor is going to be personality and our industry needs to think about personality when I started out doing what we call information architecture the idea was well you know you sort of wanted to make the whole website accessible from any page within the site and the truth is what we do is make decisions on behalf of the users and I think that we do need to impart our own opinion in this we say this path is more important than that path right and uh, in that way we can instill a certain degree of personality because we are guiding the users. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. We have big data and we're enamored of big data right now and we have huge websites but it could be that maybe websites should go back to being 30, 40, 50 pages. Uh, it's feng shui. If you eliminate the irrelevant, what's left comes to light. It's easier to see if you separating wheat from chaff or whatever you know cliche you want to choose I have a client now they had a site that had you know several thousand pages and they got a new webmaster in and she was smart enough to say well you know most of this is junk she cut it down to about 600 pages if you look at the statistics there are probably only about 50 to 80 pages on this site that have ever been viewed by a human the only visits have been through search engine robots so there's a lot to indicate that you know if she had cut if she could cut the site down to 50 or 80 pages they'd have a better return on investment right. uh, uh, because people would find what they were looking for I mean the, the statistics the user statistics and the user interviews are appalling for this and everybody knows it but uh, it's a little difficult because it's not being communicated up in oh, right. now we're back to empathy moving up towards the stakeholders yeah, and I think analytics um, are much better and easier for people to read and understand, and it's easier to go into a corporation and use that data to make different decisions and say, nobody's ever looked at this page, it's not useful, take it out. That's right. There's a lot of stuff that's done because, you know, somebody in legal thinks this is, thinks this is important, and I think that this is one of the reasons why app apps have become so popular, because 
I see apps as being deconstructed websites. They're just sort of a little corner that has some functionality that's useful. Right now we're sitting in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, I haven't been to Baltimore, Maryland in 10 years. But my, my telephone now tells me how cold or how warm uh, or how rainy it is outside. That is useful information. Now, I live in Copenhagen, Denmark, and the truth is, today, I could care less whether it's raining in Copenhagen, Denmark. This is not useful information to me. I don't need an application that's going to tell me what the weather is forever. If I go to weather.com or whatever it's called, you know, I can type in the name of my city and all of this, and it works fine. But the truth is, I need an app that's going to tell me what the weather is like where I am. That's all I'm interested in. I could care less what's happening in Shanghai or someplace else. Somebody in Shanghai doesn't care what's happening in Baltimore. So apps are really good. And I think that perhaps the success of apps will get people to start to rethink websites that have a tendency to grow bigger and bigger in a, a horribly organic way. At the very first IA summit, there was a woman from Sonoma, California, by the name of Allison Head, who had been responsible for the redesign of the Microsoft intranet. And they had something like 39 million pages, including, I mean, it was kind of, it had become the filing cabinet of the repository of strange semi-historical documents from the history of Microsoft. So you know, the badminton team that Bill Gates put together when they had opened their offices in Albuquerque, this is still on the internet. And Allison Head came in and she threw a lot of this stuff out, cut it down, and there were still millions of pages, but uh, she cleaned it up. This is now 14 years ago, and we've got the same problems. We have a lot of sites that have grown organically. There's too much information. There's a lot of stuff that isn't being used. And uh, I'd like to see it thrown out. So I think apps may, ref may, may uh, encourage people to, to make their, their websites and their other interactive applications a little easier to deal with. Right. You talked about adding personality, and you, you mentioned that you could do that through the path. What other ways can you add personality to the site? Well, certainly through content. Uh, we talk a lot about content strategy right now, and, and I'm delighted the content strategy is, uh, is gaining so much momentum. Um, it's not information architecture. Uh, information, if, content strategy is very much about the boxes. Information architecture is very much about the paths, the arrows that connect these. I don't see these as competing industries, and a lot of the people who are thought leaders within the, the, the content strategy community actually come from uh, an information architecture background, or it may not have been called that, but they were certainly doing sitemaps and uh, wireframes and whatever. Uh, the, um, one of the things the content strategists are not talking about is the tone of voice. Some do. I, uh, I, don't, I don't mean to make violently blanket statements here, but I think tone of voice is something that we tend to overlook. If you are doing a website for a medical school, you want to express, we know what we're doing, we're solid, we're sober, we're very serious, we're very good, we also understand your needs as a patient. Right. That's a very different tone than my organization, which is called Fat Ducks, uh, not D-U-C-K-S, but, <laughs> but, but Ducks, D-U-X, Design of User Experience. 
and we but we do have quacking ducks on our business cards and and the whole thing is kind of quirky and it's good for a couple of reasons we get to tell a story people say why are you called fat ducks and we get to jabber away about that but it also means that if we adopted the same tone as a medical school, people would say, well, you know, these people are kind of boring. Uh, they're supposed to be cutting edge and innovative and they should, you know, be cool. And, you know, they've got, they've got ducks, you know, painted like hot rods, for goodness sakes. You know, the, the, we expect a different vocabulary. Right. Well, your tone on fat ducks is fun and intelligent. Well, thank you. I, well, our 404 page, our, our File Not Found page, is a classic. As a matter of fact, it is the most visited page on our site. And when this first started to happen, we were kind of shocked because so how many dead links can we have? <laughs> we're getting all these hits on our, on our File Not Found page, the 404 error. And it turned out that uh, the uh, fellow, uh, uh, Klaus uh, Koskor, who was head of, uh, a Dane who was head of uh, user experience for Yahoo, had blogged about it. And he said, these people understand how to write a 404 page. And so everybody was going to our 404 <laughs> page to see the 404 page. And it's, it, it's completely skewed our statistics. And now, I mean, even you know, six, seven years later, it's still the most popular page on our site, which is really a very depressing thought when you think about it. <laughs> no, it's got, it's awesome, I think. Well, before we wrap up, why don't you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your book, Usable Usability. Usable Usability uh, came about years ago when a client came to us. They were doing, they had a, they had bought a software application that was Austrian, and then they had, um, you know, brought it to Denmark and worked on it and developed it and they had Polish developers that were adding new features and functionality. It was something that was designed to help architects work out the um, the um, uh, the energy value of, of, of new dwellings and there's a lot of certification and other things, there are a lot of documentation that needs to be sent in to government agencies to make sure that new builds are 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 not wasting energy. So that's what this program did. It was it was very sophisticated. The problem was it was very unusable. I mean, you could learn to use it. And when you'd learn to use it, it was incredibly powerful. But it was kind of difficult. And so they came and said, look, Eric, can you put together a PowerPoint presentation for us that we can go out so we can evangelize within our organization go down to, 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 to Poland, talk to the developers, get them to understand usability. And they had not very much money for this particular project. And I said, well, you know, I'll do it because I think it's fun. Um, and I have some ideas as to how it could be done. But I want to retain the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the intellectual property rights. I mean, you can use it, but I get to, to repurpose this as I see fit. And uh, they agreed to that. And, um, and so I wrote this, and one of the things that struck me was I had read someplace, and I know it's certainly on the Wikipedia, is that there are two sides to usability. One is ease of use, but the second side of the coin is elegance and clarity. And I thought about that for a while, and I said, well, isn't that interesting? Because ease of use is really talking about um, uh, uh, the, the physical aspects of a thing. And 
elegance and clarity is talking about the psychological aspects of a thing. And so, well, okay, so as an information architect, if I was going to cut these down into categories, how would I do it? So I ended up with 10 things. And uh, I mean, if we look at, at, at ease of use, I mean, things have to be functional. I mean, you, you click on a button, it's got to work. Um, uh, they think should be responsive, ergonomic, and so on. And by the same token, elegance and clarity, well, things have to be visible. We can talk about the fold. We can talk about under, understandable, that we have to build a shared frame of reference with people. You can't get people to buy a pig and a poke. They've got to understand what it is they're getting. And so if we're using language that they don't understand or, uh, or you know, we have a product that's very quirky. We talked about the microphone earlier. Uh, you know, it's kind of a cool thing. A picture, in this case, is probably worth a thousand words. It would help people a lot to understand what it is we were talking about in terms of your little microphone and recorder right. sitting on the table here. We don't have a shared reference with the listeners to this program because they haven't seen that microphone, and it would be very difficult to explain. So anyway, ease of use, elegance, and clarity. And I wrote this up, and it actually worked quite well for them. And I, you know, I gave some talks internally for our clients about usability. And at one point, I was approached by um, by John Wiley and Sons, and they wanted a book on usability because, well, you know, Jacob Nielsen was was working for Morgan Kaufman, and 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 Steve Krug was published for Pearson New Writers, and. They wanted a usability book. I didn't want to write a usability book. I said, I want to write a user experience book. And they didn't want that at all. Uh, so I ended up writing a user experience book, but I put usability in the title, and so everybody's happy. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I, I outlined the 10 things uh, that I think are, you know, it's just another way of, of, of cutting things up. Rolf Molik and J Jacob Nielsen have an excellent set of heuristics. They They cut things up a little differently. I'm not you know, claiming that this is, you know, the be-all and end-all. You can slice and dice this any way you want, but this happens to work for me very well, and it's worked very well for our clients, and they understand it. Now, the, the cool thing about the book is, at the end of each chapter, there's a list of ten things that you can look for, and some of it is, you know, real low-hanging fruit. If you are looking for functionality and you're designing forms, maybe you don't want to make state, region, province a required field because there's no European that will ever be able to use your your site. Uh, just removing the asterisks or changing the business rules or allowing the answer none uh, makes your form much more usable. And forms is where the conversions take place. If the forms don't work, it doesn't matter how pretty the home page is. Home page is not where you're supposed to be putting your money. So anyway, there. At the end of each chapter, there are 10 things that you can look at. And so what I ask for at the end of the book is so if you're really trying to do quick and dirty work and you don't have a budget and nobody in your organization has the least idea what you do or why you're there, take one thing from each chapter. Look at whatever problem or website or device you're working on. You can be designing a chair. Uh, you can be designing trash cans. An overfilled trash can doesn't work because you can't put more trash in it. Okay, is this a design problem? Is it too small? Uh, or maybe it's a service design problem that it's not being emptied often enough. So that's how user experience and usability yeah. sort of get put together. So one thing from every chapter, 
and then sort them. Sort them in order of what is most mission critical. I mean, what if, if it doesn't work, you can't do your job to the things that are not really very important. And then take that same list and rank it again in terms of this is really cheap and easy to do, and this is really difficult and it's going to require a lot of development time. Anything that ends up near the top of both lists is what you do tomorrow. It's as simple as that. And if you can change one thing and you've established a baseline and you've kept your statistics, then you can actually go to the C-levels and look. I removed a little asterisk and I changed one menu item here and look at how much more money we're making. Wouldn't it be an idea to spend a portion of that money to let us investigate the rest of our offering? And then you start building a business case. Right. And business cases are what sell. Uh, the fact that we're passionate about what we do doesn't really cut it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of UX Radio is sponsored by Parallax Branding and Interactive. At Parallax Branding and Interactive, we're not your ordinary design firm. We call ourselves a branding and interactive agency, but really, we're in the business of helping our clients make a difference in people's lives. We work with clients who educate, innovate, and create positive social impact. We call it building brands with purpose. Does your business aim to cultivate knowledge, spread awareness, or create meaningful connections with your audience? Do you need help with branding, strategy, or interactive design? Parallax Branding and Interactive can help. We live, breathe, and love design. We're exceptional listeners, strategists, marketers, and communicators. And we always deliver what we promise. We choose clients we believe in, and that's why they choose us. Visit www.thinkparallax.com. That's thinkparallax.com slash UX radio for a free consultation. Parallax Branding and Interactive, building brands with purpose. We choose clients we believe in, and that's why they choose us. UX Radio is produced by Laura Fedorov. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more.